Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you're back with us this week as we try to answer some more of your questions about the Bible. That's what we do every week. If you're a newcomer to the program or just found us, uh, that's the way we operate is take viewers' questions. Uh, we also take uh, call, uh, <laughs> our website is open for uh, anybody that wants to log in there and uh, give us a question that way. We're happy to take it. There's a phone number and a website on the screen throughout the program. Use those anytime you want uh, to let us know what you'd like us to talk about. But we're happy to take your question and try to find an answer in the Bible. Uh, on the chance that you pick a topic that the Bible doesn't talk about, we'll tell you so. But uh, in general, the Bible's got principles for living for just about every kind of question. So give us a call and let us uh, know what you want us to talk about on Know Your Bible. Let me introduce my partner, Mr. Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. Glad you're back and studied up and ready to go. Uh, I think you drew the first question, but we always start with our viewing audience. Let them have a question. And today, the question is, how many men did Gideon take to war? A famous story about God cutting down the number of men and how many men did Gideon end up with? Uh, we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program. See if you know that one. All right, Toby, what's your first question or want to know? Well, a viewer would like to know about fasting. And they say, how can a person fast if medical conditions require them to eat? All right, well, if you don't know what <coughs> fasting is uh, or if you're uh, new to that topic, fast, fasting is simply uh, avoiding a, a food, and typically all food is the way it's typically thought of for a certain length of time. Uh, fasting is addressed in the Bible, uh, but it's not something that's required for Christians under the New Covenant. And uh, if you uh, want to do it, that's certainly fine, and Jesus did address that some. But I would say certainly if you can't do it because of medical conditions, then certainly you shouldn't. Uh, another type of fasting, maybe uh, less common, is one where you avoid certain types of food. Uh, and if you're able to do that and would like to, and your doctor is in agreement that that would be an all right thing to do, I think that's a fine thing. Um, but uh, we have no command in the, in the New Testament that requires Christians to do it. We know that they did do it at certain times, and it was usually coupled with specific times of devotion and prayer. And uh, Jesus really emphasized that the importance of it was as a private personal spiritual discipline, and it wasn't to be done for show uh, or so everyone would just know that you're doing it. But if you decided you'd like to do it, you need to certainly take into consideration your medical conditions, uh, but know that you're not required to. Let's look at how Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. He said, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting. 
but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And so I hope that's helpful to you on the subject of fasting. Alrighty, thank you, Toby. Uh, I got one, one of my favorite kinds that, that the Bible just answers directly. Mm -hmm. The question is, how many children did Mary, the mother of Jesus, have? Uh, how many children did Mary have? Well, the answer is at least seven, a minimum of seven. And we find that in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Let's look at that together. Uh, when Jesus went back to Nazareth, the crowd heard Him talking and figured out who He was. And they asked each other, Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And aren't His sisters with us? So Mary had Jesus, she had the four brothers, uh, uh, James, Joses, Judas, and Simon, and then at least two sisters. Uh, so you add all that up and there's a total of seven minimum. So that's how many children Mary had. Okay. All right. Uh, the next question a viewer asks is, uh, what effect will the historical research of believing scholars have on Christian doctrines? All right, well this is a, certainly sounds like a very studied viewer and someone who may follow those kind of things. And my general answer to that is that all truth is God's truth. I don't think we have to worry about man, uh, human beings discovering something uh, that would be uh, opposite or against what we're told in God's Word. Uh, that's been tried many times throughout the centuries. Uh, people have looked at something in the Bible and said, well, that can't be true. We, we, we've never heard of this person. We never, you know, there's nothing in history to suggest that to be true. And they say, well, see, there you go. The Bible must be false. But uh, as we uncover more truth, uh, we find out that just uh, like we believe all along, that the Bible is true. It's from God's Word and it can be verified by history. Now, it's not a book of history. It should be uh, hasten to say that. It's not a book of science. It doesn't, it doesn't reveal all of those topics, but as it addresses those topics, we find them to be true. Uh, and his, additionally, historical research can be very enlightening, uh, and very insightful, helpful as you're doing your study. I want to give you a couple of examples, and I think we have some pictures on the screen here. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were discovered in uh, the caves uh, in about 19 by the Dead Sea about 1946-1947 and they were discovered in multiple caves not just one um, and they the, the scrolls that they found there uh, were uh, a thousand years farther back than we had of any other texts that we had in, in the Bible and so that was interesting I thought whoa here, here's a much earlier copy of the original text might this reveal that something in the Bible is different than, than what the original older text shows? You know what they found? Largely the same. Uh, and so it just confirmed our belief that Scripture is accurate and trustworthy and reliable. Uh, then there's also the story of uh, King Sargon, and he's a kind of a minor character and uh, mentioned in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1. And for hundreds of years, people said there is no other mention of King Sargon uh, of uh, Babylon in, in history. This is, must be something where the Bible is wrong. Up until about 1843, there was no record outside of the Bible that King Sargon ever existed. Uh, but in 1843, there were hundreds of records discovered in an archaeological dig near Nineveh. And, uh, of course, what was mentioned in those records, but King Sargon. And, all the records of his dynasty and kingdom. So, uh, we, when we 
look at historical and archaeological discoveries, all we're going to find is reaffirmation of uh, what we find to be true within the Bible. And as long as our doctrines line up with the Bible, I don't think there's going to be any change in those. But we can always trust the Bible. And as long as those are Bible-based, we can trust the, the doctrines as well. Uh, let's read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 as we end this subject. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And we understand that doctrine is important, but we understand the Bible is where all of that begins. I hope that's helpful. Good question. All right. Thank you, Toby. We take just a moment and talk about a good way to study the Bible. Uh, we like to answer questions and give you few answers every week to Bible questions, but there's so much more in the Bible that we advocate home Bible study, and we've got some free study materials that we'll be happy to send you so that you can study on your own and uh, see what God has to say for you. There's uh, eight lessons in this first series you see on the screen right now. It's a very basic study. It's just uh, introduction to the Bible. The first two lessons are about the Old Testament and the New Testament and a few other major topics of the Bible. So when you get done with this one, you'll have a pretty good understanding of how the Bible's laid out and when it was written and what it's about. And good, good introduction. Then we've got some more advanced courses uh, that take you into more detail. All of them are Bible studies. They're not uh, church doctrine or some denominational creed or uh, anything that we're trying to push on you. It's just helping you study the Bible. And uh, as you do that, you'll find out what God's truths are. So we advocate that. We make it real easy for you. There's absolutely no cost. Uh, you don't even have to pay postage. So just all you have to do is call that number on the screen or log on to the website. Tell us you'd like that course and we'll get it started for you immediately. Uh, you can make your way through it as quickly or as slowly as you want. Uh, you'll learn a lot about the Bible. So give us a call. Let us get that started for you. All right, my questioner. Uh, well, actually, there were a lot of people that called in about this one. Uh, the viewer says, You said the Bible doesn't say anyone went to hell. Well, Luke 16 23 says Lazarus did. Okay. I remember the question and I remember the Sunday that it was broadcast. The, the phones kind of lit up. There were a lot of people <laughs> took exception with what I said. Uh, the question that I had back then was about Judas and did he go to heaven or to hell? And I said, pretty sure went to hell. The, the Bible doesn't say directly. Uh, and I, off the top of my head I said, I really can't remember the Bible saying about anybody, he died and went to hell. Uh, and I don't think the Bible does say that, but we had a number of viewers that uh, were paying pretty good attention <laughs> and called me on that. So this one pointed out the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, there was a little mistake in this question's uh, stating. It wasn't Lazarus, it was the rich man that went to hell. Uh, but let's look at that and we'll see that the viewer was right on that one. Uh, in Luke 16, 22-23, uh, the story's about the, the beggar and the rich man that wouldn't give him anything off his table. It says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So Lazarus was the beggar. Uh, the rich man was not Lazarus, but the rich man died and the version there says he went to hell. 
Uh, it's actually a bad translation. He went to Hades. He went to the place of the dead. But he was in torment. He was in the bad side of Hades. Uh, so he eventually went to the place of the hell. So viewers right on that one. Uh, then I, we had some other viewers point out a couple of others. Uh, uh, one particular one was Korah. I mentioned him in the Old Testament. And it really doesn't say he went to hell, but when the earth opens up and swallows you, <laughs> you're probably not in good shape. <laughs> a pretty good clue that you might be going to the bad place. Uh, Korah started a rebellion against Moses and he and his buddies. Uh, Moses said, step back, get away from Korah and the boys. And God opened the earth up and swallowed them and they went down to the grave, it says. But uh, pretty sure they didn't end up in the right place. Uh, and actually the Bible does say Judas went to hell in pretty uncertain terms. John 17, 12, I didn't put that on screen for you, but it calls Judas, uh, he was doomed to destruction. And actually we got another question about that later, that he was a son of perdition. But perdition means he was doomed to destruction. Uh, so Jesus said that about him, that all the others had been saved except the one, Judas, who was doomed to destruction. So. Bible does say a few people ended up in the wrong place, but in general it just doesn't give us that final judgment. So hope that clears that up and teach me not to talk off the top of my head. <laughs> Stick to the notes. <laughs> I do appreciate the spirit of the question. I think it's I think it's good that we have so many viewers who take seriously their Bible study. And they, yep. you know, they don't say, Hey, here are two guys that are on television and we just you know, whatever they say goes, well, you know, we're infallible, we're fallible too, not infallible. We're, we're fallible too. We make mistakes and, uh, you know, always check us against scripture and, and we're, we're appreciative when you do that. So we are, uh, let's see, I think I have the next question and the viewer asks, why is it so important to be baptized by immersion? Uh, well, um, when you specify there that baptism by immersion, uh, that's kind of a redundancy in the question. Uh, the word baptism means immersion. Uh, you kind of ask, why is it so important to be immersed by immersion? And the answer is simply, without, without being flippant, uh, that's what Jesus commanded. That's what the apostles commanded uh, from the very beginning, all through the early history of the church. Uh, we only have examples of people being saved by repenting of sin, confessing Jesus as Lord, putting Him on in baptism. Now, baptism is a word that's basically been transliterated, meaning that in the New Testament in the Greek, in the original Koine Greek, uh, the word simply says baptizo. And the translators early on, uh, I think it was King James, when the, when the translators were going to put immersed, he didn't like that because that wasn't how he had been baptized. So he said, just, just make, just transliterate, just call it baptism. And so there's lots of uh, debate over baptism. Is it sprinkling? Is it pouring? Is it uh, immersion? Well, the word simply means uh, uh, buried, dipped, or immersed. That's, there's, if you're if looking at the basic word, that's exactly what it means. Um, and so Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16, Jesus said, Repent and be baptized. Uh, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the first gospel sermon. Uh, the, the people he was preaching to said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized 
for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So um, we're just talking about terms here. Uh, immersion is the only way technically to be baptized uh, because that's what the word itself means. Um, some people say, well, this is just semantics. It really doesn't matter, you know, as long as there's water involved some way, somehow. But it really does matter because words mean things. And uh, Jesus told us to do, you know, baptizo. He, uh, there's another word for sprinkled, which is rantizo. He didn't say that. He said, be buried, be immersed, and be dipped. Um, and so uh, it would kind of be like Jesus saying, to use this example, uh, he would, if he said, repent and run a marathon, well, you can't run a 5K marathon because a marathon is 26.2 miles. And so, I'm, and I'm glad he didn't say this, by the way, but if he said repent and the only way to be saved is repent and run a marathon, then it's repentance and 26.2 miles. And when you do that, you'll be saved. Uh, that's not trying to earn our salvation. That is simply... Uh, being obedient to what he commanded. <clears throat> so let's look at Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 together. And I uh, and, uh, hope this helps answer the question. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore <clears throat> buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There is no question that baptism is a part of the salvation process. And as we look at it more precisely, baptism always means immersion and burial under the water. <coughs> All righty. Good explanation there, Toby. And I agree with you. I'm glad he didn't say anything Me about too. marathons <laughs> or 5K for that yeah. matter. That'd be just as bad. All right. Got a dietary question here. The Bible condemns the eating of swine. Why is it okay to eat swine today? Well, uh, because some witnesses said so. Uh, Jesus said so, God said so, and Paul said so. Uh, I'll review those witnesses with you, but I think that'll cover the problem. Uh, of course, the Old Testament does condemn the eating of pork uh, and a lot of other unclean animals is what the Old Testament calls them. Uh, we believe that most of those laws, I think some of it was just to learn to be disciplined and to do what God said and understand the difference between clean and unclean, holy and unholy. But uh, most of the dietary laws we believe today had to do with health and safety kind of things. Uh, we know today pork is one of the meats that if you don't keep it real refrigerated and if you don't cook it completely done, uh, pretty dangerous to get trichinosis and get real sick. Uh, we've got good refrigeration. We've got thermometers now where we know how uh, hard, long to cook it. Uh, so it's pretty safe. But back in those days they didn't. So God just said that's unclean. Don't eat it. Probably a, mostly a health safety reason. Uh, but when it came New Testament time, God changed a lot of the old law, uh, took some of it out of the way, uh, repeated some of it in the New Testament. But the dietary laws particularly he took out of the way. He didn't re-implement those. Uh, a couple of scriptures on the screen here. First, Mark 7, 19. Uh, this is the case where uh, Jesus was talking with the Pharisees about whether you had to wash your hands or not before you ate. And he said, 
that there's no food, there's nothing that goes into man that makes him unclean. And Mark, who wrote this account, put in parentheses, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Okay? Now, that was still under the Old Testament, but Jesus was looking forward to when the Old Testament was out of the way, I think. And Mark says, see there, he gave us a clue that all foods were going to be clean. Then in Acts 10.15, this is the case where uh, God was trying to convince Peter to go to see Cornelius. And he lowered the blanket with all the food in it. And he said, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter didn't want to. And God said, don't call anything impure which God has made clean. So there he was saying, all this food, all these animals, clean and unclean, I'm saying they're clean now. I know that was about the Gentiles and all that, but there's a clue that here's where we're going. Now, when the New Testament took effect, when people became Christians and began to follow uh, Jesus and came out of Judaism uh, or from Gentilism into Christianity, uh, this was one of the big arguments, was do we have to keep the old dietary laws of the Old Testament? And Paul particularly, the apostle to the Gentiles, said, no, you don't have to. So let's look at that scripture. It's Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 16 and 17. Uh, Paul told the Christians, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. So he told Christians these old things from the Old Testament, food and drink, uh, and Sabbath celebrations for that matter. He said, don't let anybody judge you about those. Those were a shadow to teach us things, but now we're in Christ and we don't, we're not bound by those. And there's a number of other places in the New Testament that talk about that, uh, mainly Paul uh, defending himself against the Judaizers. So, so, so Jesus said it, God said it, and Paul said it. That's why we can eat swine today. That's why we don't have to follow the Old Testament dietary laws. All right, let's take just a moment and invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. Uh, we're sponsored by the Churches of Christ and kept on the air in your area by a Church of Christ close to you. So like we like to mention a few of our supporters every week. And occasionally we mention the home church of Know Your Bible. That's who we've got on the screen today, uh, the Northside Church of Christ up on North Meridian in Wichita. Uh, if you're ever passing through Wichita or maybe you're already close to Wichita, uh, we'd be thrilled to have you drop in sometime and visit us. We've got classes for all ages at 9 o'clock. Uh, 10 o'clock we worship together. Uh, great bunch of people there. Got a lot of activities going on for all ages. Have a very special uh, program on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. That's Celebrate Recovery. Uh, folks that are looking for help in their life with uh, problems that they don't seem to be able to deal with. Celebrate Recovery is a great way to do that with a Christian-based uh, focus. So you're invited to that on Thursday nights at 7, but anytime. Come see us at Northside or whatever area you're watching in. Visit the Church of Christ near you and tell them thank you for keeping us on the air. All right, Toby, what do you got coming up here? Uh, if you were like, as a uh, where is it found kind of question, they ask what scripture mentioned three heavens. Well, the three heavens uh, is mentioned in 2 Corinthians. It's where Paul is describing the vision that he had. 
and uh, he, he says, I know a man in Christ. We know he's using that to talk about himself. Uh, let's read it from 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, where it, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Well, that's interesting, and that's technically where it's found. People may ask, well, are there three heavens, and what, what is that all about? Well, to understand uh, that uh, descriptor, you have to understand a little bit about Jewish culture. And we kind of, we don't use, I mean, we kind of use the word heavens in the same way. But they had three levels uh, in their language to describe the heavens. The first was where the birds fly, what we would call the atmosphere, the sky. Um, that was the, the heaven directly above us. The second uh, level, the second heaven, if you will, is out, out outside of earth uh, where the sun and the stars reside. Uh, we might call that the universe or outer space. Uh, that is the second heaven uh, that they referred to. And the third heaven was what they referred to as the spiritual realm, the place where God and the celestial beings dwell. And so what Paul's saying here is, I had a vision and I, was, I got to see this third heaven. And he describes it, but he says, there were things there that I can't even tell you about. And what I love about that to me is that Paul's saying heaven is going to be so good, but there just aren't enough words to describe it. There just aren't enough descriptors to tell you how good of a place it is. And so that gives me hope. I look forward to going to the third heaven someday. And you can too if you're in Christ. He's the only way there. <laughs> And uh, we know it's going to be a wonderful uh, place that's beyond words. So that's the third heaven. That's where it's found, and uh, that's what we believe it means. Okay, one last question we'll squeeze in here. Who is the son, the man of perdition? Some translations say the son of perdition. Uh, that means doomed to destruction is what the term means. It means they're unredeemable, that it's already settled. Uh, they are going to destruction. Two places in the Bible use that. John 17, 12, uh, Jesus said that was uh, Judas was a son of perdition or a man of perdition. Uh, somehow he had been designated to do that, and that's, that was going to be the outcome. The other one, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, probably talking about the Antichrist there or the multiple Antichrists, I think who it's talking about. Uh, the term means unredeemable. So I don't think we ought to ever use it. I don't think we ought to ever call somebody a son of perdition or a man of perdition. Uh, that's God's job to decide who's doomed to destruction. All right, let's make sure we get our trivia question answered today. The question was about the Gideon and how many men did he take to war? Uh, the answer is 300. And the story is a great story. I remember Gideon asked for volunteers and thousands of people showed up and God said that's too many and he kept cutting them down. And he said if you went to war with all those people you'd think you won the war. Uh, if you go to war with 300 people you're going to know I won the war. So he sent Gideon off with 300 and Gideon won the war. <laughs> Glad you've been with us today. We're going to invite you to be back with us next week on Know Your Bible for more of your questions. Till then we hope you have a great week.
Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.